Welcome to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes, Building Up a Nerve, a podcast for neuroscience trainees that takes you through the components of a grant application with successful awardees. We know that applying for NIH funding can be daunting, but we are here to help. It's our job. Hello, I'm Marguerite Matthews, a Scientific Program Manager at NINDS. And I'm Lauren Ulrich, a program director at NINDS, and we're your hosts today. In this episode, we are talking about letters of recommendation, letters of support, and the description of institutional environment and institutional commitment, and how they are different and what they are. And of course, our disclaimer still applies. Everything we talk about may only be relevant for NINDS. So if you're applying to a different NIH institute, it's always best to check with them about their policies. Our guests today are Dr. Sequoia Ashburn, Dr. Christopher Chen, and Dr. Corey Harwell. So let's get started with our introductions. So I'm Sequoia Ashburn. I'm a first-year postdoctoral fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In terms of NIH awards that I've received and or applied for, I started my graduate school experience on a T32, which is awarded through the institution. I also applied for an R01 diversity supplement as well as a TL1. And the most recent award I've applied for was the F99KOO D-SPAN award. So I've applied to a few NIH awards. I didn't receive most of them on the first trial, but I did resubmit and receive them on the second. In terms of my research, I'm interested in the cerebellum and how it relates to higher cognitive functions and neurodevelopmental disorders. In graduate school, I studied the cerebellum's involvement with reading disability or developmental dyslexia in children, where I tested a controversial theory that the cerebellum is the primary cause for the reading impairments seen in children with dyslexia. And for that, I used a combination of functional connectivity and activation. Since then, I've extended my research to use graph theory, which is a measure that can describe connectivity at a network level. And I'm using this to study how the cerebellum interplays with cortical networks in children with ADHD, as well as their working memory abilities. And I'm using a combination of structural and functional connectivity for that. And lastly, in terms of a hobby outside of science, I'm really big into Latin dance. So salsa, bachata, merengue, anything. I love it all. I love that. I can't dance to save my life. So I'm always in awe of those that that can. I'm Christopher Chen. I'm just starting fourth year postdoc at Harvard Medical School in the laboratory of Wade Regeer. I also study the cerebellum. It's great to have another cerebellum person on the cast. I've been studying the cerebellum since graduate school. Actually, when I started graduate school, the cerebellum was thought to be a motor structure to deal with motor coordination. I looked at cerebellar outputs underlying that. And then more recently, um, we've kind of had to rewrite the books a little bit and say that the cerebellum actually has a lot of non-motor roles. I think most famously, people have put a uh, specific mutation into the principal cell of the cerebellum and found that you can recapitulate autistic phenotypes in mice. So what my research program kind of revolves around is trying to see what the pathways are from the cerebellum to the rest of the brain to subserve all sorts of non-motor behaviors. And that's kind of what I've been working on for most of my postdoc and then a little bit more than that. 
awards that I've applied to in graduate school. I applied for the F31, I think, several times. I was triaged every time. Never ended up getting it. In a postdoc, I applied for the F32, and I was lucky enough to receive that. And then most recently applied for the K99, and I also received that. And it was the second time around that it took to get both of those awards. Let's see. Hobbies outside of work. I enjoy music a lot. There's a ukulele behind me. And I actually, I sing in a choir in the area that we work in. It's the Longwood Medical Area. There's actually a choir, the Longwood Chorus. It's really special. It's made up of scientists and doctors in the area, and we all sing together. Unfortunately, now we're not really singing together. We're trying to do everything virtual. But that's how I spend some of my time outside of lab. So have you all made any YouTube videos singing together? Yeah, yeah, we've actually, so we've been trying to put together some of these virtual courses. It's very tech heavy. Everyone kind of records themselves and then we put everything together in post and perform together virtually. Yeah. So we have some YouTube links. We'll put it in the show notes. And Corey? Corey Harwell, currently an assistant professor in the neurobiology department at Harvard Medical School. And I'm a developmental neurobiologist. So my research program is largely focused on understanding the genetic and epigenetic uh, mechanisms that provide the neural diversity that we get in the developing brain. We largely focus on the forebrain and in particular in the cortex, but recently the lab has become really interested in the basal forebrain and specifically the septal nuclei in the basal forebrain, which produce a really diverse complement of GABAergic projection neurons that are thought to kind of provide this link between the limbic system and the kind of higher cognitive areas, including the cortex and other structures. I guess so. I was actually many years ago a neuroscience scholar, and for more recent awards, at the start of my first year as a faculty member, was awarded a KO1, and currently have two R01s: one with NINDS and one NIMH R01. So my very first R01 was triaged, <laughs> and actually, I think it was both a shocking and a highly educational experience. And I think one of the things that really helped me in learning about grant writing and the grant writing process is the early career reviewer program that the NIH does that was actually, I think, more helpful than any individual advice, but actually seeing the process working in person. And hobbies, I guess I actually don't have many interesting hobbies during the pandemic. It's mostly been my love of cooking and eating food <laughs> and doing that with my family and for my family. So I'm the primary cook for my household. Any favorite recipe you've made recently? So <laughs> I think we did a halibut not so long ago. So it was a halibut with this white wine sauce. That was uh, a pretty big hit. I think it was for an occasion, some kind of special occasion that we had. Now, did you get on the sourdough bread making kick that everyone else seemed to be um, doing in the pandemic? No, actually, funny enough, we don't eat a lot of bread. <laughs> so we do a lot of rice as our <laughs> carb of choice in our house. Yeah, there was not a lot of bread baking going on uh, for us. It's probably for the best since apparently there were like flour shortages throughout the country.
Can you all tell us the differences between the various letters in these applications? What they are, the letter of support versus the letter of recommendation, and did you know the difference when you were preparing to apply for these respective awards? So I guess I can talk since I've probably had experience with both the recommendation and support letters. I tend to think about a lot of training funding mechanisms that Chris and Sequoia have done and I've done in the past is kind of focused on the individual. So the grant is really for the individual and that individual's training, whereas a lot of the R01 grants are for the project. And I think the letters are kind of tailored to that in the same way. So the letters of recommendation are about the qualifications and the quality of the individual applicant, for particularly for training award, where the letters of support are about individuals' roles in supporting the success of that particular project. That's how I would break it up. Yeah, I think one of my old mentors kind of described the letters of support as, uh, well, how are you going to prove to anyone that you know how to do this thing that you're proposing, this fancy new technique? That's really where the letter of support comes in to help you out. You need somebody with a known expertise to say that, yes, this applicant is able to do that, or I will give them the support that they will succeed at this particular task. Great. And so starting with the letters of recommendation, how did you decide who to ask for letters of recommendation? So for me, I really wanted to choose people who I've worked with for a decent amount of time who could speak to some of my characteristics that would be attributable for the grant itself to show that I would be persevering and willing to put in the work. Because anyone can write a letter of support, but to have a letter from someone who you spent a decent amount of time with or worked on a project with, they can give more detailed descriptions of you as a person and also can speak to more about instead of just listing like your CV or awards, they can describe how you got there, make you seem more like a person instead of a resume. I had definitely had the same kind of approach. I also actually asked my mentor, I had kind of a short list of people that I was considering asking for letters of recommendation. And I asked my mentor, well, like, what do you think of this list? Do you think these people will write me a good letter? And I actually had a lot of insights because I guess in those faculty meetings, people do talk about their graduate students and their postdocs. So there's a lot of insight that your mentor can give you who's a good letter writer and who has some um, really positive feelings about you and supporting you. What kind of information did you give your recommendation letter writers in order to help them help you <laughs> in giving you a letter that had all the information that you felt was needed in there? So for letters of recommendation, I usually specific games page, the best case would be just if we could sit down and talk about it and just kind of run through like what exactly the grant is you're applying for and the general flow of the project. And then where you think your weaknesses are, like if they can address anything in the letter itself. I think that my best experiences have been when you're able to kind of sit down or have like a straight dialogue with the person that's going to be writing your letter. And then you can specifically lay out where you are and then what would be the best way that they can help you. Also echoing off of that, I always caveat this with I'm a type A personality. I did, in terms of guidelines, I would provide like bullet points of not just the specific aims, but also the experiences that I've had with them that I want them to include in the letter and like specific keywords from the FOA that I wanted them to highlight or talk about. 
So I did attempt to give them, I guess, some more direct guidelines as well. From a faculty perspective, can you talk about what you expect of your trainees when they're thinking about applying for these types of award, um, whether it's NIH or not, what you would expect of them um, in terms of information that they provide for you to write the letter of support or recommendation as a sponsor? Yes. So I would say first and foremost is advance notice so that we have enough time to actually put together a strong letter. And all of the components they mentioned, I think the most helpful is to have a conversation about what each person's expectations are. Uh, and in particular, in thinking about the KO one letter, which is, if I remember, it's kind of a combination of a recommendation letter, but also this letter of kind of commitment to a particular person's role as a, a mentor or part of a mentoring committee and to make sure that they can speak directly on their roles into how they'll contribute to your training over the course of the grant or the fellowship. Do you have any advice for trainees on how to explain in an application a time where they may have had a bad relationship with their mentor or the relationship went bad at some point during the training? Um, so, for instance, a trainee who may have had to switch labs, should they be getting um, a letter from that person or have someone else write a letter that maybe explains the reason why they had to leave the lab and go somewhere else? Can I answer this question from the perspective of less of bad mentor, but more of filling in, I guess, gaps or things of that nature? So one way to think about it, I think, is these are all areas in which you can improve, whether it was a bad mentor who can't write you a letter or you don't have a, many publications, any form of attribute that could be like seen as negative by the reviewers. I think it's important to keep in mind that the goal of the grant is to show off the resources that you have to complete your training. So like, yes, you have these like negative attributes or not as appealing attributes, but you can use that to your advantage by describing that in your training plan as ways that you will improve and advance as a graduate student or a postdoc and improve yourself to be a better independent researcher. So that said, I would say to not spend time necessarily trying to explain the poor or negative portions, but spend time on the other side of that in explaining how you can improve yourself as an applicant. I think that's really great advice. Um, and, you know, it's also always helpful to, you know, have this discussion with your current mentor, um, somebody who you do have a good relationship with now, and brainstorm ways to address this past um, relationship. Um, it probably should be addressed in some manner, just because it is such um, an expectation that you will get the letter from your grad advisor, your postdoc advisor, but you know, you don't have to go into detail. You can just state things very plainly um, and then have someone else who was familiar with your work during that period be the one to write the letter. And this happens even in other situations, like let's say an, your advisor passed away, they wouldn't be able to provide a letter. And so you would just note that and have someone else speak to that experience. And this is, of course, something that your current advisor can also address in their letter if you, if you don't feel comfortable addressing it. So in terms of the 
letters of support. Let's see, we talked a little bit about what should go in them, but how do I even know if I need a letter of support? Thinking about it, at least from the perspective of an R01 type grant, I always think about my lab and what I have in my lab and what we have exclusive access to, both in terms of personnel and expertise. And anything outside of that, whether it's a key piece of equipment, whether it's someone with the expertise to either run or analyze a particular experiment, that rises to me as someone that I'd like to have a letter of support from. So if it's someone that has equipment or if it's even a core facility, you know, within your department or at your institution, having a letter that states that you will have access to this equipment to do these key experiments, I think is something that you'd want to have a letter for. For, I think, my first R01, in which we were starting to do a lot more sequencing, so a lot more next generation sequencing, even though we didn't have like an extensive publication history with those types of experiments, you know, we were starting to do them in the lab, but we still got letters from people that we would use as consultants for the analysis of some of the bioinformatic data. So those types of things, I think, will rise to the level. So anything that you think might give a reviewer doubt about whether you could do it within your lab and within your kind of established expertise, you want to get a letter of support for any of those. What kinds of things do you think make a good letter? I, I would say like many things in managing collaborations and science in general, that communication is key. So at least with letters of support, letting them know as much as possible about the project. You know, presumably this is someone who you've already had some kind of relationship with before, or at least are thinking about uh, forging some kind of collaborative relationship. In some letters, I've even, you know, I've sent drafts of the aims in which I thought a particular collaborator might contribute to let them know. And then also to let them know how you see their role and their contribution to the particular project. And then what I think makes uh, a strong letter is, again, the, the details, you know, being able to uh, communicate exactly what that person's role is in the project, how they'll contribute, even the particular experiments or resources that they'll make available for the project that will, you know, make it successful. For letters of support, definitely have to share a lot of the project and you want to specifically say there's this particular technique or something or something very specific that you need them to address in a letter. One thing that I meant to mention, particularly from core facilities, they quite often have a form letter, but I think it is important to tailor the letter for your project. So again, I think it's important, even if it's a core, to communicate with that person so that they can talk about the specifics of the project, you know, all of the other information about the capabilities of the core and its behavior core imaging, but then how it will suit the specifics of your particular project, I think is important so that it doesn't end up being kind of generic. And in terms of on the more training side, we often see letters of support from advisory committees or mentoring committees in the K grants. And I was wondering if any of you included that in your applications. 
So I did. And in fact, I delayed submitting my K award until I actually started my faculty position because I wanted to be able to actually establish relationships and see who'd be willing to help me out, who'd be willing to serve in those roles so that it would be a a legitimate commitment (laughs) that I was getting as I was putting together the grant. And for that, I actually thought about the experiments that we were proposing to do and who in the department that could help on that side for the scientific side, but then also on the career component. So things that I'd never done, like run a lab, you know, who are my colleagues that I could actually go to that would be willing to sit down once a month and just talk about the practical advice of, you know, how many times do you meet with the people in your lab? How many times do you do one-on-one meetings and those kinds of uh, practical aspects? So I think, again, it's kind of a critical component as to being able to communicate those things. Yeah, I think another thing that pops up is when you do your first submission and the summary statements come back, and then the reviewers will kind of point out all the little weaknesses. And that's kind of where you can use a letter of support to patch those up. A lot of the times, you're not even aware that certain things might be issues. There's been like a couple of techniques that I've used in the past that never happened to publish on. So there's no real track record of me being an expert on them. So it came up in one of my summary statements that has no track record. And I was like, oh, that's a surprise. I've actually been doing this for many years. So that's where a letter of support that somebody knows me or somebody even has expertise, we just bring that in, patches everything up. And then your application becomes all the more stronger because you've you had this unknown ace in the hole that's just waiting to be kind of deployed. Yeah, the summary statements almost tell you where you want to apply these letters. That's a really great point. You're putting a lot into these applications and you think you've covered all the bases, but sometimes you don't know what you don't know, or you don't know how to convince reviewers that you're capable of doing this. And I really like that you use the summary statement, um, not as a mark on your good name or that they're out to get you, but really they're trying um, to get you to think more deeply about your science and how you're able to build your own confidence. Yeah, I think some of the best grant advice I got from Wade, my current mentor, was your first application, expect failure. <laughs> just, he just say straight up, you're not going to get it. The chances of you getting are, are extremely low. All you really want to do is get within striking distance for your resubmission, which was like, it's completely true. But like once you get your summary statements back, it becomes a, it's a very tangible kind of process now because you're supplied a bullet point list of all your weaknesses that you can address. And that's a lot easier to to deal with than this big amorphous thing that is applying for a whole project and getting a whole team together. I think it also makes the case for having other people review your application before you submit it and getting feedback from people, um, perhaps someone who doesn't really even know your science, but can speak to the clarity in which you've written your proposal or someone who is an expert in your field and says, okay, these things really need to be tightened up and perhaps maybe challenge you in how you're thinking about things. It doesn't mean you have to change your whole outlook, but it gives you a better appreciation of how to make your claim how to make it clear, and hopefully be able to convince other people like the reviewers that you are capable of doing the science. And we talk a lot about on this podcast, having people who are going to criticize you or going to critique you um, before the reviewers get the chance to do it. Um, 
I think it can be difficult for trainees to receive this kind of feedback. Uh, It may hurt your feelings, but ultimately it will help you to explain yourself better and um, allow you the room to understand what's really important about the things that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so Coria or Corey, did you have a similar experience of changing anything about either what you asked your letters of recommendation or letters of support to talk about in response to the summary statement or the reviews you got back? So for my case, one of the comments that the reviewers had was that they wanted a particular element of my project to be better represented. In this case, it was specific to reading a map disability. So I proposed to visit a lab that specializes in that specifically for neuroimaging and children in which case I would receive training, but also have the opportunity to network and, I guess, mingle with people in the field, not only gain some technical expertise, but also to kind of grow my network. And particularly for the F99K00, that was, I think, advantageous, because part of that grant is putting yourself in a position so that you can find a postdoc shortly after your graduate school experience. So having that opportunity to go and network with labs and give a presentation for a completely different lab and get their feedback on my project, that was pretty valuable and a good idea slash comment from the reviewers. I think my first R01 application, I got letters. And I think this is where I've learned the hard lesson about having specifics. There were certain aspects of the project that we hadn't done and I'd gotten a letter, but it was a pretty generic letter. from a collaborator. And one of the critiques from the reviewers was like, you know, this person says they're willing to help, but nothing about like how specifically they're going to actually help with the success of this line of experiments and this project. It was just like, I have expertise here and thanks for letting me know you're applying for this. So I think that the lesson that I learned there is, again, just being able to both communicate the expectations that I have for different collaborators or consultants and being specific about that and helping them to be specific about that in the letters. Great. Okay. So now I want to shift a little bit. So another big piece of the training related awards is this letter of institutional environment for fellowships or institutional commitment for the K awards. And I was wondering if one of you wanted to give us a a short overview of what that letter is and what it should say. So for the institutional commitment letter, it's very easy to end up with a generic letter that they just have sitting on their desk. I would highly recommend avoiding that because it reads as generic as it is. So for mine, at least, I added more details or suggested more details for them related to my research and how the university is useful specifically for my project. So it still included like the general statistics of how their graduate students are doing and where previous graduate students are now, but it also included about half of it, at least more specific details about me and my project. And since I do neuroimaging, that included describing the neuroimaging core and my ability to access it and different career development or professional development opportunities that the university offered, different resources that the lab has that are unique to my particular lab, things of that nature. 
just add to that. I, I reached out to the department and I had a conversation and then they provided me with a letter. So it was not quite as, I think, as targeted as, say, the letters of support or for sure not like the letters of recommendation. But I felt like it was a little bit more out of my hands, but it was a nice letter. All right. Thank you all for sharing your wisdom today. Can I ask each of you to share one last piece of parting advice for future applicants? So one thing that I think I didn't actually mention for like my description in NIH awards that I received, I do want to put in a plug for the Neuroscience Scholars Program. It's a great diversity program offered through SFN, but the money comes from NIH. And they offer mentoring, they offer funds for not research, but professional development related activities. And the community itself is great. It's a great support network. They offer webinars and seminars that are extremely useful for regardless of whether you're staying in academia or considering leaving. Highly recommend applying. And that application is usually in the spring. Thank you for bringing that up. I am a proud NSP alum and current mentor. So I'm happy that you plugged this really important program instead of me having to do it um, and seeming biased because I oversee that program as uh, an INDS staff. So I will, I'll echo that in being both an NSP alum and an NSP mentor. I think at some point, not this past year, the year before, also a reviewer for the application. And it's a terrific program. I could tell a story about how my first NSP mentor was a letter writer for my faculty job applications because of the relationship that we developed. And it worked out pretty well. Yeah, I guess you turned out all right. (laughs) (laughs) Two hour ones, you're not doing so bad. Christopher, what about you? You have some advice? I think just talking to people, having direct conversations with your mentors about what you need and anybody that'll support you. I think don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's one of the real and nice things about academia is you can go around in your institution and find some people that will support you. Most people I think I've come across are extremely helpful and even surprisingly more helpful than you can possibly imagine. (laughs) You're usually overwhelmed by people's generosity. Yeah, I just uh, add on one more time, I think just for grant processes, in particular for uh, new faculty and starting out with Uh, their first grant applications is that they're a bit overwhelmed by how foreign the process is and kind of not understanding how things work. And I think it definitely serves you to reach out to your colleagues and make those connections uh, so you can better understand it. And then I'd also, hopefully the NIH still does this, but the early career reviewer program, I think is tremendously helpful and good. (laughs) Because I think that was, for me, a really eye-opening experience where you get to see in the room how the sausage of scoring and making decisions about funding grants actually happens. I would also add to not be discouraged by the reviewer's comments. Some of them can be phrased a bit harshly. I highly recommend just taking a step back from that whenever you do read the comments and then figure out how you can best address them. Because a rejection doesn't mean no, it just means not yet. So try again. Thank you for saying that. And we did not pay our guests today to say these things. 
So it's not just the NIH staff telling you these things, either in a podcast or in conversations with you. Uh, It's coming from folks who are in a similar situation. They're down in the trenches um, with you. So Lauren, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, I'll just continue on this theme of community. I think it's very important to have your people to build your community that can come through formal programs like neuroscience scholars program. It can come through your graduate program, your postdoc association, your lab, but no academic is an island and people succeed through the sharing of knowledge and wisdom and techniques and supplies and and all that stuff. And so Spend that time in developing your community and your support network, and it will really pay off in your future. What about you, Marguerite? Yeah, I'm sure I sound like a broken record, but I think it's important to recognize that this application is yours. It's not anyone else's. So it's important that the folks who are contributing to your application, whether it be the institutional office or your mentor or a collaborator, that they are speaking about you, your abilities, and your interests moving forward, and not just basing it on any random graduate student or postdoc. Um, It's not a plug and play. This really is about you and your future. And you should feel empowered to write your application in such a way that others advocate um, supporting it in the same way. Well, that's all we have time for today on Building Up the Nerve. So thank you to our guests this week for sharing their expertise. And thank you to NANDS Program Director, Dr. Bob Riddle, who composed our theme song and music. We'll see you next time for the last episode of the season where we tackle the resubmission process. And you can find past episodes of this podcast and more on grant application resources on the web at nindsnih.gov. And you can follow us on Twitter at NINDS Diversity and at NINDS Funding. You can also email us your questions at nindsnervepod at nih.gov. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time. <laughs>